Welcome to today's episode in Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and James Biddick here uh, on the Life in the Front Office podcast. Really uh, just a pleasure to uh, reconnect with James here, uh, another Ohio University Bobcat. Uh, and I got to spend some time with him in Athens. Uh, fantastic uh, human being and uh, first first person I learned about a little bit of field hockey from. So um, James, welcome welcome to the podcast. Jay, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, long time, what's the saying? Long time listener, first time caller. Um, so yeah, right. I'm a big, big fan of all the work that you guys are doing, you and Andy, anybody else is doing with this podcast and listen in as much as I can and, and see how other people are living their lives. So um, congrats on what you've done so far. And as you said, my title, it's a little bit long, uh, Student Athlete Career Development Program Manager at the University of Notre Dame, which basically means I help student athletes figure out what they're going to do once they, uh, once they finish playing, whenever that might be. Well, we, we love having longtime listeners on because uh, the famous saying of, you know, you have two ears, uh, one mouth, you got to listen twice as much as you talk. Um, you get the opportunity to chat today about not only uh, your transition uh, from outside the States and into the sports industry here, but also uh, what you're doing at Notre Dame and, and within the athletic program there and helping student athletes. So let's dive into this, this first piece of your story. And it's a really interesting one. You were also a professional field hockey player, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, which that's the first we've had on, on the uh, LIFO podcast here. So tell us a little bit about your journey over to the States and uh, how that transition went. Yeah, so it's a bit of a long story, so I'll try and sum it up as quick as possible. Um, in terms of being a professional field hockey player, I, I'd say that's a very loose, loosely used term, professional. Um, but played to a reasonable level of field hockey, so played for my province back in New Zealand and then played through uh, New Zealand age groups and um, New Zealand age group teams and things like that. So field hockey and cricket were the main two sports growing up. Um, they're not big sports, two big sports over here um, that I found. And um, before I decided to come to the States, I came to the States back in May 2015. Geez, so it's been about five years now. Um, before that, I was actually an attorney back in New Zealand and kind of came to the conclusion that that really wasn't exciting for me. Um, it was great skills and great people and all that sort of stuff, but it wasn't exciting me. And I, and I hit 30 and it kind of dawned on me for the first time. I thought, well, I'm not going to live forever. You know, I want to I do something that I'm super passionate about. So I, um, I left the law firm and kind of had two guiding lights that I wanted to work in sports and help people. Um, and a colleague of mine, she actually went and did the FIFA Pro Masters program. And so I looked that up and Ohio University came up as a well-respected program and looked more into that and applied and was lucky enough to get in. And as I said, came over in May 2015, did the one-year course, um, absolutely loved it. And while I was doing that, I was working for the Career Centre in the College of Business there uh, under Jen Murphy and her team and really loved that. Um, it, it was very similar to the field hockey coaching that I'd done. You know, when you play as a student athlete, you, you win yourself and you win as a team. But when you're coaching, it's almost like you know two people winning. And I really loved that process. And I was also exposed to... Uh, the world of college athletics, which I, I, I kind of knew, knew of when I was back in New Zealand, but I didn't realize how crazy it was and just how big it was and how much money was involved and all the opportunities that come with it. And so I spent the next couple of years working for the Career Center at Ohio University, um, but I really wanted to get back and, and work with the student athlete population 
um, and particularly student athletes who were high achieving academically and athletically. And the position at Notre Dame came up and applied for that. And it's two, it's just coming up two years since I've been in that role now and, and absolutely loving it. And, you know, Notre Dame, I mean, from a perspective of athletics and getting jobs in the industry, I mean, that's a, it's, it definitely is up the rankings in terms of places that you could be. And, um, you know, the, the quality of student athletes that you're working with day in and day out, um, you know, I'm sure that's a, that's a joy and, and fills that passion that you were talking about um, that you, you know, you really get to enjoy coaching uh, and seeing them come onto campus as freshmen leave as, you know, seniors uh, or fifth years or, you know, through a draft or whatever the, the future holds for them. Right. And um, ultimately seeing that from, from finish to end. Now, when one would ask, well, what was the transition like coming from the world of New Zealand where cricket and field hockey are two major sports yet they, you know, they're very little existence here. Uh, and then you had to learn all about the sports industry uh, in a pretty quick year uh, as you were going through grad school and, you know, understanding what opportunities existed out there. Um, how did you transition to not only the U.S. from a, a you know, legal process standpoint, just going through the headaches that might come with that uh, in terms of the job searching process, but then also just uh, adapting to um, the culture and the industry that it is here? Yeah, good question. So, so the legal part, I was really lucky. Um, the people at Ohio University and Jen Murphy in particular, um, they did a fantastic job of, of shielding me from a lot of uh, the things that were going on in the background. So that I would just have to provide information they required, resume, transcripts, information about my past, and then they would send it off to the lawyers and they would look after that, um, that piece of it. So to give a little bit more context, as a foreigner, when you come to the States, you can study and then you're eligible for, everyone gets what's called an OPT, which is a one-year, um, I guess a one-year visa to work in the States. And then if you want to stay any longer, um, you have to transition to an H-1B. Um, so the OPT wasn't too much, of a, too much of a hassle, but I know it has been for other uh, foreigners that have, overseas that have studied at Ohio. Um, just because employers are reluctant to take a gamble on them, particularly if they're looking at applying for that H-1B, there's no guarantees if it's in the private sector. So I'm probably going into too much more deep, too much detail here, but basically with the H-1B, as I understand it, and this isn't, this isn't legal advice, so don't take my word for it, but this is my understanding of it. You apply for an H-1B, if you're either going to like a university or a nonprofit, then you have to satisfy the criteria and then you essentially get the H-1B. Where if I went and worked for Chicago Bulls or Genesco or something like that, um, I, I would apply for the H-1B. I'd still have to go and tick all the boxes for the criteria. Um, but then you essentially go into a lottery. And so a lot of employers are kind of thrown off by that. So any of the advice I'd have for a foreigner coming into the States would be, um, if you can, work for a you know, university or a, an organization that, is a little bit more flexible on that H1B process if you want to stick around um, more than one year. Um, and then the other little loophole, I think if you're studying STEM, um, you can also get a three-year extension or a three-year extension total on the OPT. So there's a couple of little things, a couple of loopholes that you want to be conscious of and aware of and you want to have good communication with the lawyers and make sure you're on top of everything. 
um, because essentially you're the one that's you know, driving the process. Um, having said that, I was very lucky with my employers there. So, yeah, it is challenging, um, but definitely no regrets from my end. And, and I've been very fortunate, not only at Ohio, but at Notre Dame, um, the legal side of things has kind of been taken out of my hands and I've had really good support crew around me. Well, and it's an important thing to just understand and acknowledge. I mean, I know, um, you know, coming from uh, Arizona to going to school in California to then going to grad school in Ohio, like I didn't know that there was a humongous process to, um, you know, the, the educational piece, not only from a OPT standpoint, but then the H1V, it just every, everything that comes with it, not only from a process, but, but pressure, right? Like the, the clock's ticking. I mean, and, and the clock's ticking for everyone uh, in terms of, you know, going to school, getting a job, um, you know, most of the time in this industry, getting an internship, which then leads to trying to find another internship or another job. And uh, you can't afford, uh, in your case, for the clock to just run up, right? Um, or for the job that you really want to come a month later than when you have to leave. And so those are obstacles in which you have to, you know, figure out how to maneuver around um, and deal with. And uh, what advice do you have for those who might be in grad school right now, who are from Canada, from New Zealand, from another country that are having that problem, you know, dealing with COVID and, and not knowing when hiring freezes are going to, uh, you know, be released and being able to find a job. I mean, those those types of problems now, yes, they might be circumstantial to what's going on, but they're going to continue to exist in certain sh shapes or, or forms in the future. What advice do you have there? Yeah, it's tough. It is really tough at the moment. I feel for the, the students that are in my position um, at the moment, just because the climate certainly changed over the last few years, and then you, you slap COVID on top of that. Um, and I think I was talking to my wife about this the other day. She's from New Zealand as well. And if I had went through the, the program and just graduated, I think I probably would have had to go back to New Zealand. Um, it would have been really challenging to try and find a job when there's the freeze happening at the moment. Um, and then you've got the visa issues on top of that as well. So I really feel for students that are going through that process at the moment. Um, the only thing I, the advice that I would give is, make sure that you're in touch with the legal department, with the university or wherever you're at. Um, so you're understanding, you know, what your, I guess your rights and obligations and timelines and everything are. So you're doing everything possible in your power. Um, and sometimes it's just out of your hands. It's, it's at a government level or um, with COVID, you just, you know, it's just another layer of complexity on top of that. So try and try and understand all the information, get all the information, be close with the lawyers, um, and then try and understand the types of employers that might be willing um, to take on the OPT and then transfer that into an H1B. But yeah, it's certainly a very, very challenging time at the moment, I feel for them for sure. Well, and, and from an employer standpoint too, it's not the easiest to understand. And, and there might be a candidate that's from uh, somewhere else that you really, really want, but you know, you need to, you need to learn more. You need to understand more. Uh, on, on how that process works, right? It's, it is a little bit different. What is some of the things that you've learned along the way, not only in your role now, but then also going through the process that others can learn from? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I think it really comes down to finding that employer that's gonna back you. Um, and then that all comes back from, you know, comes back to networking and understanding the type of op opportunity you're looking for. So being very specific, specific in your job search um, 
because as a foreigner you have more restrictions on where you can work and and employers aren't as keen perhaps to to take the chance on you so I would say try and identify those companies that are willing um, or the organizations or the industries that are willing to do that um, and be strategic and narrow in your search so then you can find somebody um, build that deeper relationship with them so they're willing to, to go into bat for you um, to have a word to the lawyers to say hey we want to keep this person and they're willing to fight for you um, that would that would be my advice I think there was a recent graduate um, who was working at Detroit with the Detroit Lions I could be wrong Red Wings I can't remember recent uh, a recent graduate and she's from Canada and I know having seen some of her LinkedIn posts that uh, she posted about you know find an employer that's willing to fight for you and that believes in you and I think um, if you find that then then you're halfway there then you don't need to worry about the, the legal stuff but yeah trying to find somebody that's willing to back you and willing to fight for you yeah and no matter what the process is I, you know I think anyone wants to find that in you know what they do right uh, the boss that that's going to believe in them you know organization culture that that they fit in uh, you know you're working with student athletes over at Notre Dame you know who want to go into I'm sure a, a variety of you know, things out into the world from a career perspective. Get, shine some light on just what that um, industry or that what that part of the industry looks like in terms of not only helping shine light uh, for the student athletes on, on what opportunities exist out there, but then also um, just how to navigate the job search process and be as prepared to take advantage of the four years, five years, however many years you're there uh, competing to be in the best position to succeed post, uh, you know, competing. Yeah, the first thing I'd say about that is, you know, we have 700 plus student athletes at Notre Dame and they come into Notre Dame all along the spectrum. So, you know, take say women's across or men's across or cross country rowing to give you an example. A lot of those students might come from, um, backgrounds where education is a is a big deal and career is something that's mentioned around the dinner table and they've seen their parents either working in you know corporate finance or investment banking or doctors or lawyers or whatever it is so it's it's kind of ingrained in that segment of the student athlete population that they they're very much aware that there's not a huge carrot at the end of the rainbow that they're going to sign for you know five million thirty million dollars to play in the NBA or the NFL so they're always thinking about that um, so they're a little bit more advanced generally speaking a little bit further along that career development process and perhaps some of the other student athletes that do have that carrot um, of playing professionally once they graduate and that's what I say to all the student athletes is if you come to Notre Dame your goal should be as you know to play as long as you possibly can you know I love my job but I don't think there's anything more fun than you know playing a sport and getting paid for it so that's kind of step one but step two is to understand that outside of that you want to develop yourself and understand who you are what makes you tick and your values and your skills and your personality and your interests and then how that matches up with the the outside world and then test that through experience and some student athletes can do a traditional internship and then some of those sports i mentioned like basketball baseball hockey you know they might get four to six weeks off over summer and then they're back on campus for summer sports and um uh, summer school and training so uh, working with them to try and create those niche short-term opportunities where it's whether it's a one-week job shadow in New York or a three-week internship 
in Chicago to get them to then test that theory of, okay, who am I? And what do I like about this role that I'm doing? Do I want to talk to people? Do I want to be in a room crunching numbers? Am I more of a words person? Do I like selling? And the only way they can really figure that out is through that experience, through those informational interviews, through job shadowing, through, through testing it. Um, and then they come back to me and we'll discuss on how it goes. And it's kind of that refining process. And some student athletes take a lot longer um, to work through that process for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier. And some of them know straight away where one girl comes to mind who was on the rowing team and she was a freshman and, and hunted me down within maybe the first two or three weeks I was on campus. I hadn't actually been pushed out to the student athlete population at that point. She somehow found me and found my email and said, hey, I want to catch up and talk career. Um, I think her parents came from medical background. She wanted to be a doctor. She'd shadowed you know, three or four doctors already. She was loving her biology courses and chemistry courses and everything. And it was like, hey, you're in a, you're in a pretty good spot. Um, and then we have the other end of the spectrum as well. So it's really trying to meet them wherever they're at um, and then understanding what your role is on how you can best serve them. Is it discernment? Is it looking for an opportunity? Is it putting together an application? Is it branding on LinkedIn? Um, kind of understanding where they're at in the process and then meeting them there. And you and I had the fortunate of being two together um, and also uh, having you contribute a little bit uh, in the 20 Secrets to Success book um back in back in 2018 uh on you know student athlete success and transition and you know utilizing the resource that you are right uh in your athletic department uh can you give a snapshot of what resources exist and just kind of what that part of the industry looks like for if someone's listening to this and they said wow i really want to do what james is doing uh because you know maybe i was a former student athlete or i really want to coach people um, or you want to just get into that world to uh, ultimately help people, like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, what, what do the opportunities look like and, and what can you do to, to best put yourself in a position to get to somewhere uh, like where, where yourself is at? Yeah, so I think there is, um, I guess, maybe three different areas. If you're looking purely at student athlete development or helping student athletes on that one-on-one -on -one or workshop basis. So you traditionally you have that academic advisor role um, and that's much more than just making sure that they're eligible. They're, they have a lot of face time with the student athletes. So that's, that's a really um, unique and, and cool role because you do get to build that deep relationship with the student athlete. And then the second piece would be that uh, student athlete welfare and development. So leadership, mental health, making good decisions, all those types of things as well. So SAC, um, would form part of that. So that's kind of the second piece. And then the third piece is the piece that I do, which is that career piece. So what are you going to do once you finish playing? Um, so if you want to break the industry down, I, I think those three bits um, is how you could break it down. And then depending on the size of the organization, the bigger the organization, just like any organization, the more specialized it's going to be. Where if it's a smaller D2 school, maybe they have one person that wears all three of those hats. <laughs> um, so it varies depending on which university you're going to go to. And then I wouldn't um, scoff at starting outside of the sports industry and building up those skills. So whether it is counseling skills or coaching skills, mentoring skills, leadership, um, delivering workshops, et cetera, all of those things are super, super transferable and relatable to what we do. So, I know when I talk to uh, people about my role and people wanting to get in here, 
they have a very narrow focus on, okay, I want to work with student athletes. That's where I want to work. Um, well, you may want to start outside of that because it's, you know, it's a little less competitive and easier to get into to work in a general university setting or not even a, not, perhaps not even a university setting, but we are using those skills um, and developing those skills and working on building relationships and understanding people and solving problems and um, all the skills that we use during the day, you can develop those and then they are super transferable over to that student athlete, um, the student athlete three roles that I, that I mentioned. And, you know, you, you mentioned this earlier at the beginning, but you, know, you went from grad school to ultimately um, working for the business school. And again, kind of like you just mentioned that developing those skills, those experiences, those relationships with uh, people going into all different types of fields. Uh, it's the same thing. You're just working with a different student population. Um, and I think sometimes like you're saying from a transferable skill perspective, that can be more valuable than ever because you're working with, with students from all different spectrums. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that might be a, an easy way in. And I also want to ask too, there, there are probably, you mentioned the size of the organization, there are probably some places where you might be the school of business, career management person, and the student athlete, um, you know, athletic department representative for, for, you know, career development as well, just based on the size um, and resources and where you might be able to get paid, right, as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just jump back to that, the point where I was working in the College of Business there. Yeah, absolutely. All of those skills are super transferable. And I, I probably didn't understand that when I first arrived on campus. I remember we were um, looking for GA positions. And I think Jim said, oh, we're going to, you know, Jim Kayla said, oh, I think, you know, Jen Murphy and career services will be great. I was like, how is this at all relatable? You know, College of Business this doesn't seem, you know, athletics, this doesn't seem relevant at all, but um, I think he and Jen saw the bigger picture of where I wanted to get to and, and they could see that the, all the skills and the, the experience that I would gain, not only working there, but under Jen Murphy as well, um, would be valuable in the long term. So they were, they were spot on and they could kind of see a little bit further down the road than I could um, at that point. And then yeah, in terms of size, um, you're right. Um, anytime I go to a conference and I meet somebody from a smaller school, um, they often wear three, four, five, six different hats. So their programming and the time that they have available for the student athlete career piece looks completely different to the strategy that I would employ just because of the time and resources that I have. So it varies so much between each organization and even power five schools, it varies between that as well because you have a different culture, you have a different maybe different buy-in from coaches, you have a different background of students. So it's, it's hard to say this is student athlete career development and this is how it looks everywhere. Um, you really need to understand that population, your resources, the support, and then build strategy out from there. Yeah, that's a great point and, and great insights on, you know, that part of the industry. Uh, as we start to wrap up the episode, you know, I, I, I want to go back to, you know, your experience. You mentioned it's been five years now um you know in, in the states and you know the experience of being an attorney you know i mean you were an established professional in in your realm um and going back to grad school uh and kind of what that process was like for you going you know having the experience in an industry and then going to grad school for something completely different uh probably feeling like you started you're starting from scratch to some extent um just, can you just walk through those mindsets and you know, again, someone listening might be in a similar 
similar space or might know someone in a similar space and, and can provide some advice for them. Yes, yeah, so it started for me really because I wasn't happy with where I was at. So if, if there is anybody out there, I mean, just not fulfilled or excited about what they do day to day. Um, I never thought you could love what you did day to day. I always, I always thought work was something that you just had to do to get paid. Um, and so that was a push factor for me. Um, that I, I just wasn't happy and then made the decision that it's kind of now or never. And I remember having a conversation with a, a very good friend in HR who was at the law firm that I worked at, um, Leslie Elvidge. And, and she said, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it now before you get older and then you have mortgage, kids, all that sort of stuff. So there is um, a time clock on that. Time is ticking, similar to the visa stuff we talked about. So if that is you, then I would say, okay, I'm going to dedicate, and make time and figure out what it is that I want to do. And similar to what we do with the student athletes is you only really know that by doing your research online, but then getting involved and in meeting people, um, getting out and talking to them, job shadowing, understanding what it's truly really like. You get one idea from what you read on the internet, but then until you actually speak to people in the profession, um, you know, being a lawyer is very different to the law shows. I can, t I can tell you that. Um, so that's kind of the first step is if you're unhappy and you want to move, figure out exactly what direction you want to go to. And then once you have that compass and you have that direction, if you're super passionate about it, then taking a step down um, or a step back isn't, I don't really see that as much of an issue. If it is something you are super passionate about, you should be then willing to make that sacrifice. And if you're not willing to make that sacrifice, then perhaps you don't want it as bad as, as you may think you do. So, um, that's, that's kind of the advice I'd have for people out there thinking, you know, I want to change or I want to do something that excites me is figure out what it is first or as much as you possibly can. What is it going to take you to get there? What sacrifices in terms of time, money, uh, reputation, all those types of things. Um, and then if it's worth it, then just, you know, jump in because you only get one life. So you might, you might as well enjoy doing what you're doing before it's too late and you can't make that change. No, I love that. I love that advice. And um, I, I wouldn't, you know, be doing you uh, a service if I didn't throw you a curveball for uh, the, this this last part of the episode. Five biggest differences between the culture in New Zealand and the states, oh. and also and also kind of just within the sports industry. Wow, five. Okay, um, I'm making you think here. <laughs> the biggest, I think, the biggest difference. I think if you look at the way sport is structured, so if you're looking at the sports industry, New Zealand's all club-based, um, where America is very professional, so professional club-based. So your community, what I've noticed in America, is the community is based around that university. That's where people get their tailgating and they feel they come together. We're in New Zealand. You play for a club, and that is the meeting place on Saturday. So you go and play, um, and you play right up until the age of 50, 60, no matter what sport it is, rugby, cricket, you just, you know, you keep playing where that's one big shock um, that I experienced in America is once you hit 18, 19, and if you're not going to go on and play for college, then that's pretty much it for you. And then same at college, if you finish at 22, 23, you're in your prime and then you stop playing and you go and get a, you know, a real job and you grow up. We're in New Zealand, um, you just keep playing. And I think that's the difference between the club based and that professional mindset. Um, so that's what I'd say about the sports piece. Um, geez, it's, it's hard. I've, I've thought about this a lot, but it's hard to, I mean, how do you summarize 300 
plus million people and say, this is America. And then summarize New Zealand and say, this is New Zealand to try and compare the two. You know, some are from uh, Portland, Oregon is very different from someone from, um, that's fair. I don't know, Alabama or something like that. Again, stereotyping, but it's very different. I would say Kiwis, Kiwis are probably a little more laid back. Um, Some would say we probably don't care as much about things. Maybe that's another way of looking at it. Things just don't affect us too much. We're kind of like, okay, um, and just roll with the punches and, and move on. Even killed, even killed. Maybe even kill. Um, you know, quieter, a little bit more reserved, relaxed, where I think uh, Americans are very much more passionate and therefore um, not afraid to put forward their opinion, where perhaps a Kiwi would kind of just, oh, yeah, you know, sit back and just kind of let it, let it slide on past. Um, but again, I, it's hard to generalize a whole population of people. And I'll, uh, I'll let and, you, I'll let you off the, <laughs> the hook on this one. I'm going to jump on that piece for the last thing is with this, with this episode. Uh, so you mentioned the passion and, and that leads to a great point of, of kind of the differences in fan bases, right? Like you've been around Notre Dame is probably one of the most passionate fan bases there are uh, in this country and in sports. And then, you know, you mentioned uh, kind of the club community and, and how professional sports go on in New Zealand. What are the, what are the biggest differences there? Yeah, you guys are, you guys are very passionate and there's a, there's a huge history to it and you're not afraid to show that passion. Um, I didn't understand probably how big Notre Dame was before I got there. Um, I only saw Rudy a couple of weeks before I, before I moved there. <laughs> and then when I got on campus and, there's all these people walking around, you know, former NFL players and like, oh, this is this person or that person. You're like, I have no idea who these people are, but everyone else seems to be very intrigued and interested in who they are. And maybe that was part of the reason for getting the role was just seeing them as, as students rather than celebrities or, you know, fans. Um, but I would say, yeah, New Zealand, again, is very reserved. So if you went to a game of rugby in New Zealand, even if it was for the All Blacks, it would be... It's a pretty somber affair. It's not, there's not too much yelling or clapping. We're a very reserved, boring bunch. Um, where That's completely opposite. You go to an American game and you have planes flying over, you have the national anthem, you might have fireworks, you have the band, you have the cheerleader. There's all the stuff that goes with it that adds to the game. We're in New Zealand, we're a little bit more just, you know, just play the game and, and we'll sit here and watch type thing. So um, you, America certainly does a great job of, adding entertainment to the sport where I think New Zealand's um, we could probably learn a, you know, a thing or two from Americans for that as being a little bit louder and more patriotic and um, it's okay to cheer loud for your team. Well, I, we can all learn from the all blacks. I know that's, I mean, I've watched that, that documentary on Amazon where they kind of do the same thing they do with the NFL teams here a little bit, uh, you know, kind of the behind the scenes and it's fascinating just the culture that they <laughs> you know, can create. And, and it's really, it's, it is inspiring, but uh, James want to thank you for, for your time and your insights and advice. Uh, certainly enjoyed uh, talking shop with you and uh, for having you on life in the front office. Mate, my pleasure. And if anybody's out there needs anything from me or help, then, you know, just reach out. Well, I'm happy to do what I can and, and keep up the awesome work, Jack. I appreciate everything you guys are doing. It's awesome.